everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. I'm Evan. Uh, it's Tom here. And yeah, welcome to episode 10 of our uh, podcast series. We finally made it to number 10. Woo. Yes. It's great. Who thought we would have got here? I, I think we should have sound effects for occasions like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, what do, how do you look back on our... Actually, wait, before we go into... Um, we reflect on our 10 episodes so far, we should just talk about what... We should mention what we're going to talk about today. So mm-hmm. what are you going to talk about on today's episode? So my main story is... Um, is a is a cover of the field of nanomedicine and i used one paper as an example of how it can be used so it's a little bit of history and uh, its applications so nanomedicine is in using very small yes small does matter and sometimes smaller is better <laughs> okay so um yeah and today i am going to talk about Again, vaccines. Uh, I didn't really want to go about vaccines again this week, but the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine was released. And I think it's very interesting what the data was released. So I thought I definitely wanted to cover this and give more people mm. a bit more information about it. So I thought I wanted to cover this again. Yeah. Um, and I just mentioned as well, I last week, and I think maybe even the week, episode before, I was saying Cambridge vaccine. Uh, so I met, I completely, it was my error. I was meant to say Oxford. Uh, for some reason, it's because AstraZeneca is based in Cambridge. So I was like, oh yeah, it must, be, uh, then it's Cambridge that it's, it's a collaboration with, but it's not, it's the Oxford. So if anyone was confused, I was wrong. It should have been Oxford vaccine. That's a great civil courage to admit it in front of everyone. Don't, yeah, well. I, I surprised no one uh, added on our Instagram saying, actually, it's the Oxford vaccine. If you're saying uh, the Oxford vaccine, what else are you wrong about? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, but so it'll be interesting to get into it. Yeah, it's very convenient that uh, you don't have to look for a new topic because the new vaccines are keep coming out, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it's just, we have to give people what they want. This is what they want to hear, so. <laughs> I'm sure it is. If you ever want to cover vaccine, let us know, and I'll have to, like, do a bit of more in-depth, <laughs> in-depth uh, coverage of something okay. else. No, um, no, it's fine. You're the vaccine expert at this point. <laughs> but I'm very much not the expert. We should totally have a, a vaccine denier and, like, a scientist. Yeah. And, and be, be the platform for them to communicate. <laughs> Yeah, that would that would be great. Um, so yeah, before we get into our, our headlines as well, um, how are you, Tom? What? How do? As I mentioned, we're on episode ten. How do you look back on our time so far? Who? I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, we grow exponentially in terms of quality of the uh, product we put out. So that was my thought before you admit to the mistake. So now uh, <laughs> I have to rethink. Uh, yeah. but it feels good i think um it uh it's a form of escape for me this mm. podcast so i really like it and um yeah it, it allows me to expand my interests in a way that i haven't i haven't thought about it before yeah 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 definitely it's it's a it's a really good project to be to be involved in and yeah i think we have imp- learned a lot and improved like i remember 
in our first few episodes we, i'd be nervous even recording even though there's no one else in the room so it's just like now i'm a bit more composed yeah one thing that became very obvious to me is um the way i talk in front of people i think you already mentioned that but recently i had a kind of biggish presentation in front of my department and i feel like talking to the microphone or mm. knowing that people are listening to me it helps a lot because like the stress was still there but it was it wasn't as um in- inhibiting you know mm. so it has helped you in real life it has helped me in real life yes yeah and, and i and i find in real life now i'm just like it's a w- i've said this before but it's like i find i talk about the stuff with norma 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 people uh <laughs> other people and i just like i just want to scream at them I'm like listen to my podcast and i have to be like oh uh i kind of like if you want to check out <laughs> it <laughs> so i have to like kind of bring myself back and just and uh not be saying like got getting people who are like god he's just all he talked about is his podcast like that is personality yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I and I do find because like obviously we read and we learn more and more and I do feel that in like majority of my time I'm surrounded by dumb people <laughs> like this has become very obvious to me uh, of, of course outside the university setting um, and I uh, find but none of a, just to say none of our listeners are dumb no 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 it's so smart so smart and John do you want to add anything on um, yeah just from a behind the scenes perspective. Um, I think the process that's been built is really <laughs> Evan's looking at me here like kind of skeptically, which he <laughs> should, I suppose, since he's the host of a skeptical podcast. But uh, yeah, no, I think the process has become really smooth. I remember at the beginning, I'd be helping set up and then doing the 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 post part of the edit, and uh, it would seem so stressful and complicated. But now that in ten episodes in, um, there's a good routine, good process built, and everyone knows kind of what to do. And everything runs really smoothly. So it's grown quite well and mm-hmm. matured in only 10 episodes. I think as a as a listener as well, it's it's matured, I think, in terms of its content and just how e- it's, it's becoming more easy to listen now. And that's my perspective. Maybe other listeners would think the same, I hope. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're welcome, John. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I even now I'd say when we hopefully if we get more episodes, we look back on episode ten and be like, wow, we 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 were naive and thinking we were that much better. So, mm. um, but like that's always part of the learning process. You you go sure. again or so. Yeah, enough of uh, patting ourselves on the back, maybe. Um, yeah, and just so before as well, we get into the headlines. I wanted to mention as well, we had a fan who. He got in touch about my power problems with my running so uh, <laughs> i appreciate the the feedback actually she gave me a podcast to listen to so i i thought it was actually pretty helpful so thank you um you know who you are if you're listening i'm trying not to laugh so hard right now <laughs> it's a yeah. real issue it is it is it is a real issue okay yeah <clears throat> right try it. go what uh what's your news headline for the week then tom okay i am being more and more fascinated by the way nature and evolution equips different species with um with the survival abilities and uh, now recently a study came out showing that a mo- you know moths. oh yeah you moths. know 
yeah, mud. <laughs> mud wings covered in sound-absorbing stealth material can avoid bats' echolocation. Millions of years of evolution of this arm race ended up in mods developing this acoustic damping material that is present on their wings. Oh. And, uh, it can, and this material can absorb bats' echolocation waves. Yeah. And uh, by absorbing the sound and preventing echoes from bouncing off the wings, the mod can stealthily avoid detection wow. and survive where the other insects um, fall uh, to, to the bats' echolocation. Too. Yeah, they fall victims. And that was just recently, uh, recently discovered. And it's, it's super cool because the sound-absorbing material comprises of an extremely thin layer of scales that lay across the wings they are light enough to allow flight, but are also very dense to absorb sound that render their acoustic footprint almost invisible. Mm. And, um, you know, you could, like, there is like some physics behind it, how it actually works. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, so, it's super cool that the nature developed this kind of um, stealth camouflage yeah, so, yeah. Uh, for crazy. survival. I know. Um. So... Yeah, so that was that was my interesting thing. There was there wasn't really that much going on in big news, so I thought this is kind something of interesting. Nice and short, yeah. yeah, yeah, that sounds like something they definitely would try and replicate in the real world mm. um, to like prevent echolocation. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's crazy when you see moths and you're like you would never think that the 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 wings it's using have some kind of yeah super uh stealthy mechanism behind it it's just people i don't like even me and other people and everyone i don't think we just realize how complex life is outside, yeah outside ourselves like you know yeah and just take a moment to appreciate that when you see that moth in your room the next time don't kill it <laughs> don't kill it just look at it and <laughs> admire it <laughs> yeah yeah no i will kill it <laughs> <laughs> so you kill mink you kill mutts is there anything that you're like fan of i think oh god i don't know we can't go well, i won't go to a huge list today <laughs> well you can name something next week evan yeah we can do that, one a week or one every two weeks <laughs> we make it a special segment on uh on, on insects or animals evan hates and how about you uh, yeah, so actually you're right in a way that I was trying to find a news headline this week um, in science news, but I couldn't really, I've heard from the vaccines, it seems like there's not a huge amount else that was published, so um, I just had this short kind of story that uh, uh, Ireland was confirmed to have dinosaurs they found, um, so... Fair enough, I think, to say that if you're applying your trade as a dinosaur hunter in Ireland, I think it would be one of the most frustrating places to live. I don't think there's much <laughs> demand for them around here. But so, hold on, hold on. What do you mean, that, like a fossil fuel? Sorry, you're probably going to tell fuel. the story, but like like the fossils, that's... Yeah, they found okay. the fossils in Ireland. Really? Well, I oh got... In, in, up in Northern Ireland, we have to say, I suppose. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, they found... They found um, they found dinosaur uh, bone, uh, fossils, yeah. And, but, but yeah, I, I, as I was just joking, like, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of dinosaur hunters in Ireland because it's one of the... It's very hard to find um, fossils here. Actually, there's a reason why that as well. Oh. The reasons that there's no fossils that have been found before, I never knew this. 
Um, I'd say a lot of geology experts, if you're listening, would know. Um, Ireland has actually a really peculiar geology that the the rock strata is mostly made up of materials that dates from before or after the dinosaurs, which means that if there was any dinosaurs, their remains would be very rare. Um, what it basically means is that Ireland's rocks are either too old or too young, making it impossible to confirm if dinosaurs existed. So does that make sense? No. What happened? What happened to Ireland in the time of dinosaurs? Did it just like disappear for a second and no, then appeared again? I don't. I don't know. Actually, that's a good question. But all I can really say is that the rock, all the rock geology in Ireland mm-hmm. is kind of not from the dinosaur time. So usually, I think from what I understand from when I was researching this is that uh, when you're like looking for fossils, you would look at for rocks that were present in the dinosaur times mm-hmm. which we don't have so it's very oh. hard to find these fossils because it's like where do you start because there's no no rock of that time in ireland mm. so mm. you can't really ever find it um but up until now we found it <laughs> now though yeah they were found on the east coast of antrim <clears throat> and they've been dated from the early jurassic period or about 200 million years ago that's such a huge number yeah yeah uh and they were yeah they were found on the island of ireland and have been confirmed by a curator and paleontologist at national museums northern ireland Uh, and it was thought to be the bone fragments they thought it was originally just one Mm -hmm. uh species but they actually belong to two different types of dinosaur species um yeah, they, despite being fragmentary, these fossils provide valuable in- insight on the important period in the dinosaur evolution about 200 million years ago. Uh, one of them was very dense and robust, typical of an armoured plant eater, and the other was slender with thin, sorry, thin bone <laughs> walls and characteristics found only in fast-moving, two-legged, predatory dinosaurs called theropods. I don't know if you know your dinosaurs that well. <laughs> It was theorized that they were probably swept out to sea, these dinosaurs, alive or dead, um, and then they sunk to the the Jurassic seabed where they were buried and fossilized, and then they either washed up on the shore in Ireland. So it was it was interesting. They were washed up. Sorry. sorry I think they were washed up. Yeah. They weren't, I think, naturally just left the dinosaurs mm-hmm. are dead and then they stayed there they must probably sank to the seabed and they came loose and washed up on the shore i think so oh uh, that's interesting it's very cool finding um and i think it's very yeah it's interesting to see um that we did have maybe dinosaurs at one stage you don't really think that the um, that the fossil will be discovered by just washing them off the shore like it's usually Usually when I think about discovering bones, it's like Jurassic Park scenario when yeah, they yeah. somewhere in the middle of the desert with little brushes and just wasting time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know how, I think, I don't know, was he like just walking the beach, this crater, and he found them because I definitely think a normal person would have just thought they were rocks. So to find them is pretty uh, impressive on their own. So it's great that it was, uh, it's a great finding. Mm. Were they just a uh, bone segments or? Oh yeah, because they were washed yeah, off. It wasn't fragments. a full, wasn't a full skeleton. Just no, fragments. no. Yeah. So they did a lot of different techniques. I think like three D imaging and all this kind of different techniques. So, um, that's how they were able to confirm it. 
Did you ever notice that, like, even with the dinosaurs or like fossils of early humanoids, they sometimes they pick up like two or three bones, or sometimes even a tooth, or you know something like that, and they somehow they're able to recreate like the whole yeah. the whole thing out of it. And it's just like, are you just guessing, or like how? How do you do this? Maybe do you it's just... I like I suppose if they have previous uh, species of dinosaur that they know what it looks like, they can then kind of project. Um, mm. Well, I don't know what a tooth that'd be kind of hard. Like maybe yeah, a bone, maybe... one of the bones or one of the yeah, bones. Pro- I'm probably over exaggerated, but <clears throat> uh, yeah, but it's it's yeah, it's crazy that they can uh, deduce that. But uh, yeah, I can't see any new Jurassic movie reboots or sequels being said in ireland in the future but we can take this for one win yeah definitely it's always um interesting mm, to discover something like that and you know maybe they're gonna open like a aquatic jurassic park over <laughs> that over in antrim and you know get the tourist revenue coming in yeah yeah go f- go from game of thrones tour to the Jurassic Aquatic Jurassic World <laughs> tour. Yeah, yeah. They shoot. They shoot. Your, uh, they shot Game of Thrones. Down yeah, in, in, in Antrim. Yeah, yeah in yeah. near near uh, near Belfast. So, yeah, maybe that was the actual dragon from Game of Thrones. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, imagine that was like an Easter egg there, and then they're like, "Oh, they're only finding it now, a year after the it ended." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, we completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh similar to this thing when they discovered this monolith in utah and apparently oh yes this, it yeah, has been monolith. there for like four years and people have been <laughs> taking pictures with it and everything it was just like super quiet until these guys in the helicopter found it and it yeah, kind of blew yeah. Up. then no one had ever seen it or took pictures with it before that no they actually have but oh. it never it never blew up it, it never made it famous but, oh like, was really bon- yeah it was a bunch of people has found it because they assume whoever did it it put it there somewhere in the last four years or at least four years ago mm. and like a couple of people have found it already in the past and they were like taking pictures but it, the story never make, made it big until yeah. the these guys from the helicopter found it yeah. and then uh, yeah they reckon it was uh it's an inspiration and to to that 2001 space oddity because there's like some scene that's very similar oh so boring <laughs> Have you seen that movie? No. Oh my, don't. It's a waste of time. Okay. I think it's was like groundbreaking at the time it was released. Yeah, it was groundbreaking in the 60s. We're living in 2020. <laughs> it's not groundbreaking. It's boring. It's literally a red lead thing pulsing and some guy talking with a very boring voice. I couldn't, I couldn't sit through it. And I, I used to consider myself like a movie connoisseur. And I'm just sitting watching this, forcing myself and thinking... I don't have to torture myself. This is boring. Let's watch something with The Rock in it. <laughs> okay. Okay. If you disagree with Tom, let us know. <laughs> Show, tell us why he's wrong. If anyone disagree with me, it's because they're pretentious and they don't have civil courage to admit that that movie is boring. <laughs> okay. Okay, I think we've rambled on for long enough. <laughs> um, yeah, might as well get into our main stories then sure um i can uh i can kick off with nanomedicine okay and uh and then you can finish off nicely with the with the vaccine um yeah talk okay cool right so why i was thinking about nanomedicine recently it's because i approach age of 30 in year in a year and two months 
So um, I've been kind of reminiscing back on my past, what yeah. I did, where I have come to. And I remember during my master's degrees, so we had a module called nanomedicine and it was like super fascinating. So I was thinking like, okay, let's, let's bring it up to the podcast. But I didn't want to like start talking about like nanomedicine because like straight into the paper, because I don't think people uh, really know what nanomedicine mm. is. So maybe a little bit of introduction and then into the paper. So kind of similar what I did with the, with the dentistry review. So nanomedicine, as the name suggests, is a combination of nano with medicine. So it's a branch of medicine that applies the knowledge of tools of nanotechnology to the prevention and treatment of disease. So Super, can you just uh, explain what nano is? It's uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm okay. just getting into that, but what is nanotechnology? So nanotechnology is a science engineering and technology conducted at the nanoscale, which is about one to uh, one to 100 nanometers. And just to kind of visualize where, where this kind of lays on the scale. If you think about an ant, ant is somewhere between one millimeter and one centimeter in size. And one millimeter is 10 to the power of minus three. And nano, nano world lies in the world of 10 to the, 10 to the power of minus nine. So okay. this is like, it's like, it's six times as smaller. Than yes. A, than an ant. Yeah. And to kind of visualize people even better, how small nanoparticles are, one nanometer is a billion, billionth of a, of a meter. Yeah. This is super small. So nanotechnology has, uh, is used to develop new medicine already in the European Union. It has been in the European Union, it has been recognized as a key enabling technology uh, capable of providing initiative uh, medical solutions and so forth. So where all the talk about nanotechnology and, and nanoscience started, it was in 1959, where Nobel laureate physicist called Richard Feynman had this famous talk called There's a Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And that was, this was this kind of the start of nanotechnology where he kind of dived into quantum physics, which is, I'm not going to try to explain quantum yeah. physics because I'm way too dumb, but this is kind of where the world of nanomedicine, nanotechnology started. That's how, but, they, uh, that's how they managed to save the Avengers, isn't it? Quantum yes, man. yes. If you think about the, um, the Ant-Man movie, they go into this quantum world, this mm. nano world, and uh, I think because nobody knows how quantum world looks like, it might as well be as, as it was depicted yeah, as in the comic book. But we couldn't really do anything about this. We couldn't visualize it until early 80s when uh, we had the, finally the right tools, you know, like the, um, the atomic force microscope. You have these high resolution tools to actually look at the, look at the nano stuff. Maybe where, where can we see use of nanomedicine? For example, in the uh, drug delivery, nanomedicine is really good because you can imagine that we can, now we can actually build up a, a carriers for drugs that are super small. So it's basically like a, like a spherical nanomedicine sphere could be built from different polymers and you just load it inside with drugs. And the, and the behavior of these nanoparticles can be predicted based on the size. So again, size does matter. And, um, and one, of the, uh, one of the drugs that is already on the market, it's a cancer drug. On its, on its, own, on its own, it, was called, it is called Paxlitaxel. Okay. And, uh, and this drug has been used uh, for different uh, types of cancers, including lung, ovarian, and breast cancer. But on its own, it's very toxic. 
So mm-hmm. it wasn't really it wasn't really good for use. It wasn't until the time when they come up with the idea of combining paxitaxel with the albumin. You know, albumin is a a protein present yeah. in hu- in human body. It's abundant protein, but because pro- of the and size, this albumin is like a it's a protein carrier transporter. Yeah, yeah, and then um, and because of the size of the albumin, the paxitaxel was uh, intelligently combined with albumin molecule in a way that it, it is not toxic anymore. And because of the size of albumin, this is, was considered a nanoparticle. So that oh. was like one of the uh, first nanodrugs used be just combination of the chemical compound with the with the albumin can i and, ask and mm-hmm. um yeah you mentioned like size does matter like why why is it that size matters so much like why does it nano so much better than like micro because micro? uh size does in nanoparticles size matters because you can control the behavior of nanoparticle based on its size you can predict the, how the nanoparticle will fold or how the, its shape would look like based on how big it's going gonna, it's gonna to be designed. But you can't do that if it's a bigger molecule. You can also, but, but this is, if you think about how small nanoparticles are, you, you can't just, you can't physically uh, build them. As in, you can't use, like, you, okay. you are not the person that, who builds them. So I think one of the ways to control the, the production of these nanoparticles is, is by, dictated by the size. I think the size of the nanoparticle dic- dictates its abilities and how it's going to look and stuff like that. And one of these examples are uh, quantum dots. They are uh, solely, the size of the quantum dots dictates how much fluorescent or color they're going to give. And they, these quantum dots are actually used in uh, diagnostic medicine. They, uh, what are they quantum have, dots? They're yeah, like... I'm, ju- I'm just going to get into it. So these quantum dots are made from different metals. They have these different physical uh, characteristics. And they, kind of, they, and they have similar role to different fluorescent uh, dyes. You know, when you have a fluorescent dye, they produce color and that you can use that to detect stuff if it's present or not, for example, in immunoassays, right? You have, a, you have a fluorophore and it releases signal and you know that something is there or not. Yeah. But there are some limitations to these, to these fluorescent dyes that are overcome by these quantum dots, which, is, which are literally different metals compressed together to the nan- at the nanoscale. And when they get excited, you know, there is this excitation of uh, uh, electrons and they go up the, to the excitation state and so on. But because they, don't, because they rely on these laws of physics that are within this quantum physics, the properties are better than the properties of the fluorescent dyes. They are being brighter. The quantum dots are brighter. They're, easy, they're easier to visualize. They stay longer in the body because, you know, with the fluorescent probes, they kind of... Uh, the, the strength of them decreases with time. Yeah. That doesn't happen with the, with the quantum dots. They maintain, they maintain the, the intensity of the signal. And again, the, the emission, the, the fluorescent emission of quantum dots can also be controlled according to their size of the quantum dots used. So you can, you can probably, based on the size of these quantum dots, you can, uh, you can control how bright the emission is and, you know, different metals give different, different colors. Uh, but I think with the, with the size of them, you just, how, how strong the, how strong, how strong the emission is. So you can control that. And these actually quantum dots 
up to the, up to some point they were like really toxic and hum uh, for human use because the metals they, they used they were like toxic to humans but the technology has improved and when i was reading about it i came across um a technology where they used quantum dots these nanoparticles to diagnose infectious diseases like hiv they actually have a single quantum dot quantum dots based nanosensors that are specific for detecting hiv uh, viruses and it requires a very low sample volume and delivers the results in a short time with very bright sensitivity levels how do they do is it like uh they have to go under a, a like a a scan like an mri or is it a under a ct scan or something is that how they visualize the fluorescence is it? yeah they have to pick it's, up the fluorescent oh, yeah. so it's just like kind of like a a, di- a tracking you know when the when it's like uh for for brain activity they have to use a uh a, a kind of a floor for or something so they can yeah yeah v- visualize I, over time the different I, areas i don't think that these hiv quantum dots are like necessarily injected into the people i think they take a sample oh and then, okay that makes and, sense and that's that's how they do it and then you know the the signal is being picked up by these specialized instruments they use they use for that but it's just <clears throat> It's more. It's just more sensitive. I don't think this would be. Uh, a, this could be achieved with normal uh, fluorescent dyes. Yeah. I think the level of sensitivity is just much greater with these uh, quantum particles. So this is just like you know this this nano world has been developing, developing. But again, these quantum dots c- still kind of toxic for humans. They use met. They use like cadmium, and I think cadmium is like really toxic for humans. So not not much use you know paxitacil mixing of a drug compound with the human protein it, it doesn't sound that fancy you know if you think about nanomedicine you're thinking like something like nanorobots coming in so it's yeah. still not so fancy so i was like okay let's find something really really interesting in the world of the nanomedicine and i found this paper called cancer biomarker triggered disintegrated dna nanogels for intelligent drug delivery very very long title but the principle behind it super super cool the way they uh they thought about it so what is the uh, what is the point of this study that i'm gonna talk about now it's like you know yourself evan when you take like an aspirin it it is being it is being redistributed across the whole body right it it doesn't have a all these ads you can see on tv when someone takes a pill and it goes straight to the uh to the point of pain this doesn't work like that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I think the same thing goes for chemotherapy for for cancer patients. Like the ke- chemotherapy not only affects the cancer cells, but it also affects the uh, the normal the normal healthy cells. So mm. that's um, it's not really it's not really cool for the patient. So lots of scientists in working on like this actually intelligent intelligent drug delivery where the the chemotherapy drug load is delivered precisely at the cancer tissue. Without affecting the, um, without affecting the neighbors' uh, tissues. If you think about cancer cells, and I know you know this, they have um, like prostate cancer. They release this this biomarkers like prostate-specific antigen, right? I think yeah. that's that's PSA. what it is. Yeah. So if you have a prostate cancer, this this would be elevated for you. Different cancers not on have different biomarkers, and they they for this study they choose a breast cancer, which has a specific expression of an enzyme increased and i will come back to this but maybe i should explain what the nanogel is first before i uh yeah before i, before I got in, into this so nanogels are basically structures 
of networking scaffold based on hydrogen bonds. So, you know, like, like for me, example of hydrogen bond is a binding of uh, thymine with adenine or cytosine with guanine in the DNA. You have, okay. this, you have these bases and they, they are compatible with each other through the hydrogen bonding. So this is, this is, uh, this is a hydrogen nanogel based on, the, uh, based on the interaction of hydrogen atoms with another atom. So if you say DNA nanogel, it's basically a, a hydrogen bond within the DNA molecule. And if you think about DNA molecule, everybody thinks about this double helix twisted around itself coming down, right? Yeah. Uh, this is not the only way DNA can be shaped. There is a field of science, or there is an art to science called DNA origami. Through the, ba through the understanding how DNA binds itself, the complementary DNA binding, you can actually create 3D uh, structures that not only look like a helix. double helix, it, it can have a different, have a different, different shapes. It could be just like a sheet, like a graphene sheet. It could be like a cube, anything, but you have to know how to design them. And there are scientists who know how to design these uh, nanogels to have a specific shape that they want. So they designed these specific nanogels. Within this scaffolding network of these nanogels, the idea was to put a specific chemotherapy drug. Right? Yeah. So you have a, nano, you have a drug trapped within this uh, DNA nanogel. So now they had to come up with the idea, okay, we have this nanogel, we have the drug inside, how is it going to be released? Uh, that's, and th I think this is the highlight of this paper and why is it so cool? So the cancer tissue they were working with, it was a, it was a breast cancer. And it, with this specific breast cancer, it has an overexpression of DNA repair enzyme called FAN1. So this is the name of the enzyme. And, the, and this enzyme can recognize specific structure of the DNA and introduce codes because this is how DNA is be repaired. Like the, the enzyme codes it, the bit that is faulty is removed and then is replaced with the healthy bit and so on. But in here, this nanogel has, like, um, has little uh, bits sticking out of it. If you think about it as a, like a spherical molecule, it kind of looks like a coronavirus, you know, with the little <laughs> okay. spikes, little, little spikes yeah, coming yeah. out. These spikes are recognition sites for this uh, enzyme. Okay. So this enzyme recognizes this, this, uh, this spike of DNA protruding from the sphere, comes in, cleaves the DNA bonds, and by doing so, it releases the chemotherapy drug. Okay. So... So this is, this is what happens. This is, the, this is the understanding behind it. So they obviously... So basically, they, sorry. So basically it'll be taken up by the... It'll be taken up by like all the cells. But in yeah. the cancer cells, they have this overactive enzyme. Yes. Um, and then they'll cleave the, 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 the gel where the, 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 the chemotherapy is, drug is. Yeah. And that'll yeah. release it. Yes, exactly. That's the that's their understanding behind it. So is is, is it a very so it's specific enough to the cancer cells this increased enzyme activity? Yes, I look I look at that enzyme activity in the normal tissues. It is kind of expressed. This enzyme is expressed ubiquitously across uh, all the all the tissues within human body. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, it, I think the it. Ha they have to do, they, they tested it in the cancer cells and they tested it in the, um, in the normal uh, cells, breast cells. 
and um, they designed this nanogel, but instead of putting, uh, putting a chemotherapy drug inside that nanogel, they put a, a chlorophore and a quencher. You know how it, the chlorophore and quencher works. Like chlorophore wants to, fluorophores wants to give the color out, but the quencher suppresses the color, so there is no mm. signal. So they, they, they had this nanogel with these uh, pair of um, uh, fluorophores. They, trans they injected them into the cancer cells and into the normal cells, and they were able to detect a signal only from the cancer cells. The mm. meaning of it was that they, the enzyme uh, destroyed the nanogel within the cancer cells only, leaving the healthy cells intact. Well, the healthy cells didn't produce maybe enough enzyme for it to work on these nanogels. Mm. So that was, like one of, that was actually one of the first methods they tested whether, whether this makes sense before they even put the drug inside. So yeah. they just, um, so that was like, that was kind of proof of concept and that was, um, it was very promising. So they, uh, they moved, uh, they moved on further on. Actually, this test with the fluorophore was done in two stages. The first stage was in the cell free system. They just wanted to see if the enzyme on its own can cleave this, uh, can cleave this, these, these nanogels, this structure. And for that, they needed the, the signal. So once that was confirmed, and then they, they went in to test it in the, in the cells. And that was, uh, as I already said, that was really promising. They noticed the high signal from the cancer cells, and there was absolutely no sing signal in the, in the healthy cells. So then I think the next, the next logical step would be to actually put the, uh, the chemotherapy drug into, the, into this nanogel, right? So uh, the anti-cancer drug of choice was doxyrubinicin. It was enclosed within the interior structures of this nanogel, and they uh, they tested it. They they introduced this drug into breast cancer cells, MC MCF7, if someone is interesting, and they also introduced this drug to the um, non-cancer cells, and then they measured the vi uh, viability of the of uh, both uh, cell types, and of course, uh, because this paper got published, there was <laughs> a there was a there was a high viability within the uh, within the group the that cells. had the no the high viability means that the oh, cells yes, were alive. Right. So there was the high viability within the normal normal cell group and like super low within the cancer. And I I look at the stats here. So within the cancer group, the viability of cells was like at twenty percent, dropping down from the hundred percent because they they had like a control was using just the buffer. Yeah, and then the um, and then within the normal, so yeah, so the viability in cancer cells was twenty percent, and inside the normal cells was seventy eight percent. They also tested this this nanogel with different uh, chemotherapy drug, similar results, but not as good as with the the uh, oxy the oxy um, rubinicin. So, so this is a better chemotherapy drug. Uh, yeah, just, yeah, just some different drug, and uh, yeah, the, for the different drug, the viability wasn't as good. The um, the cancer cells had the viability at forty percent, and the normal cells had the viability at eighty percent. So yeah, the de deoxyrobinicin performed much better, and they they also tested with the uh, just the drug on its own, and both cell lines were affected quite similarly. If you just introduce the drug on its own. So that means that this, this, this DNA nanogel actually does protect the cells from the uh, action of the uh, chemotherapy drug. The healthy cells. The healthy cells, yeah. 
But what I would like to really see, and this is my comment on this, is uh, if they could co-culture co cancer cells and healthy cells together mm. and then introduce the drug and see how it would behave, whether yeah. the release of the drug by the cancer cells in any way would leak out into the surrounding tissue. Mm. That, would be, that would be really interesting to see that I didn't see in this paper. But Verizon didn't do that. Yeah, well, maybe they were pressed on times. Maybe they wanted to get published, you know, I don't know. But like the study on its own was, was really good. I can't say anything. It's just I would like to see how does this perform in like uh, in the co-culture when you have a two different cell types. And I think that was a good example to show nanomedicine and how it can be used in the... Um, how, how it is being used with the drugs that we have right now and with the diagnostic test, but how it can be uh, pushed forward and using actually a DNA as a, as a nanoparticle, as a nanostructure. Mm. I think that's, that's really cool. Do you have any um, papers or any examples that are actually, I know you said the albumin one, mm. but do you have any one, any other one that's being currently used in, in not yeah. just in cancer, in, in any disease? Like? Yeah, so there is actually, uh, they are, there is in development, they have this therapeutic application of nanoparticles that are able to kill uh, infectious and non-infectious diseases. Oh. You know, so just like metabolic hormonal disorders, autoimmune diseases. And there's a really huge trend towards developing uh, nanoparticles able to kill uh, bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. Mm. Like antibiotic resistance is a huge problem. And now they uh, they working about they working on nanoparticles that are actually able to uh, to kill uh, bacteria, and they work they they test in uh, uh, metals such as gold, silver, or iron oxide at the nanoscale. So, so have they actually done this in humans? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. Is there anything that has been done? This is what I'm trying to say. Is there oh. any of these per, like shown? I know you said the albumin one. Yeah, but is there anyone that? Is current like maybe in trial? Isn't are they doing? Are that you seen on your research? Not that I've seen in my research. So it's all been just in uh, in animal models or cell. cell yeah, based. yeah. But I'm sure I'm sure there is something out there that I just have missed. But no, no. The the example that I have here, I, it's not it's not yet approved by the FDA. Mm. But that's that's really um that'd be a great one for antibiotic resistance that we can actually move away from antibiotics so yeah use yeah other uh methods yeah and when i was reading about it um especially about for the um for the uh, bacteria that are resistant to antibiotic like what like loads of times they mentioned this fact that the nanoparticles are so small they can cross the uh, blood brain barrier yeah. so even even if you have like some like brain infections and stuff like that if 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 these technologies will be like properly developed and available you know that could they could easily cross the blood bra brain barrier yeah. which is sometimes very tricky for actually large molecules mm. and you know work work there so that's pretty promising but i don't think any of this anti anti uh, microbial or anti bioresistant pathogens solutions is available on the market right now yeah i think i think it's still very much so experimental at the moment. experimental and i think yeah i feel like a lot lots of more effort is put into uh, nanoparticles from the perspective of drug delivery vesicles rather than an actual uh, because it's just easier to build an envelope that you just filled with the the, with drug. the with the drug and you just send it off 
rather than developing an actual yeah. nanoparticle a mechanism of fighting yeah. <clears throat> bacteria and stuff like that. They, I only give an example of paxitacil, but there is way more nanodrugs that are already available and I just didn't bother looking all of them up. I just thought yeah, paxitacil yeah. is a nice example. Yeah, so that was kind of, um, that's what I wanted to say about the um, nanomedicine and yeah. the... Um, and the uh, the paper that I read it yeah, was yeah, really the, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a really promising technology. I think the it's the the main worries is it that the if it's not specific enough, it could they can kind of build up in certain organs. Would they? Is that kind of fair to say that the? I think because the danger because or? they are so small, I think they are being excreted pretty easily as oh, well. Okay. There's like the the danger of accumulation of them. I think is not um, is not that much pre is not that much present. I don't think people are worried about this, but I don't think I'm an expert to actually talk more about it because then I think I will enter the realm of speculations, and I don't like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, no, no, that's um, it's really that's good. You did a good comprehensive overview. Um, it's yeah, it's it's really interesting and really uh one to look forward to in, in investigating or just to see how it progresses yeah um, and yeah just that's always the aim hopefully in treating cancers that we can just get to the point where it's super specific and we don't have to worry about uh killing off healthy cells or having unwanted side effects that we can yeah. just get in and yeah. kill them so yeah as, if any any technology that can help with that it's it's great like okay <laughs> cool that's good thanks for that tom no problem good. evan so today I'm going to again talk about vaccines, uh, this time about the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, vaccine news that was uh, released uh, a week ago when this episode is released. Most probably, again, we said this, I said this when I was discussing the Pfizer one that, oh, there must probably be something else released. And of course, the Moderna one was also released. And I kind of mentioned that briefly as well. Um, uh, but I just want to focus mainly on the Oxford AstraZene- AstraZeneca one because there's been a lot of kind of um, discussion about it and what they've said. So um, I just wanted to kind of give people a kind of better picture of what was happening. Mm. Again, just to remind people, so this one vaccine is made from a, a cold-causing adenovirus. So it's different from the, the Moderna one and the the Pfizer one, which is the messenger RNA. Mm-hmm. So uh yeah these these adenoviruses that was just isolated from the stool of chimpanzees and then <laughs> modified so that it wouldn't replicate in cells and then they can modify it to to tailor to what they wanted to do so they tailored it to replicate the coronavirus this cor- um sars cov 2 mm-hmm. so it was started tested across the world um starting in the uk and then it branched out to brazil south africa and the us uh, and then the phase, the phase two results, which were published initially, sound that the vaccine produced a similar immune response in old and young participants. So last week, they released their phase three interim results. So this is based on um, 131 cases. So what they said is like once they hit a certain amount of positive uh, SARS-CoV-2 cases, they'll do an interim analysis and see what the breakdown of who who got the vaccine versus who didn't get the vaccine and who what was the breakdown of who had the cases mm-hmm. so based on this 131 cases they found that a vaccine could be up to 90 percent effective when a half dose is given 
followed a full followed by a full dose one month later, and then if they give two full doses one month apart, this effective actually dropped to sixty two percent, and then on average it was shown to be seventy percent effective. So they weren't really sure why this was. Um, it's a really um crazy story that they actually did this half dose full dose by accident. What? Yeah. So what happened was they had not really planned for or doing this. They were only planning to give the two full doses a month apart. And then I think they did an analysis and seeing that there was uh, people that were having less side effects in some of the groups. And when they looked into it, they found that they were uh, had a, actually only got half a dose at the beginning compared to what they should have got. But so they decided that- to just roll with it and keep going with this protocol with this arm so they did half dose full dose compared with a full dose just to see mm-hmm. might as well keep going when they had done so many or by accident already but that was a mistake it was an error yeah so oh, wow. they weren't sure yeah they weren't sure why this was all effective but they thought maybe because it might mimic a real infection better but now scientists are being skeptical as we are, I mean, as I am, <laughs> about the protocol because they didn't initially disclose the error and other key details, uh, which is leading to concerns over their transparency of the vaccine and the research they were doing. And it seemed like they were more concerned with telling uh, investors um, rather than actually disclosing this to the public. So that's why people were a bit like, that's, uh, this is AstraZeneca now. Yeah. So, yeah, in the past few days now, they've announced that they're actually going to do an additional international study to validate these results. Um, so this actually may hold up approval by the EU and the FDA to be used because uh, they want to make sure this is properly validated and that it wasn't some kind of error again. Um, and it's just interesting because, yeah, this is AstraZeneca and it's Oxford. It's kind of based in the UK. They're actually hoping to bypass the EU counterpart approval and just approve the supply to speed up its deployment. That's how desperate the UK is for this vaccine to be released. Can they not? I don't understand how the politics works, but can they not just apply for the vaccines that are like like the the Moderna or the uh, Pfizer vaccine? Or is it because... I think they this is this this Oxford vaccine is the one where they have the most doses agreed I think with uh AstraZeneca because AstraZeneca said that they even back when they were still doing phase 2 sorry phase 2 the trial they put a bet on to say like oh that we think this is going to be effective enough so they actually ramped up production even without the phase 3 results so I think they have over like 3 is it 3 billion or even over 3 I think 3 billion or 300 billion uh, doses already nearly up in production. So uh, it was, they they really, oh, sorry. Yeah, they committed to producing 3 billion doses by next year. So they were just going to ramp up production, even though they didn't for sure know that it was going to be effective. Well, they gamble. Yeah, so AstraZeneca shares have actually fallen by 8% this week, which is crazy because everyone was so excited about these results. They're like, yes. Uh, another vaccine looks promising and even when i was talking to people at work there were more when they heard like 70 70 effectiveness they were like oh that sounds more realistic that re- like the others sound too good to be true yeah 
Uh, and yeah, it was so promising, but then it was like, why are they, so why are their shares falling? And it's just because of all these questions about the trial results, they were like, what other mistakes have yeah. you had in the protocol? And exactly like me messing up the name. <laughs> but, um, but it's a reasonable question. Yeah, and then, then a day after the data was unveiled, the head of Operation Warp Speed in America, so Operation Warp Speed is the in the US how the government's agreeing to whatever vaccines get approved they they'll have a commit to buying the vaccine off them mm-hmm. um this is actually bef- just a side note trump has been saying uh i it was me who was involved in the vaccine development and i should get all the credit where <laughs> and i i originally thought operation warpsby was they would commit money into the companies to help fund the research into the vaccine but it wasn't it was only just an agreement that they would buy the vaccine when they were approved by the fda so, so it's just whoever is first that's that's yeah, where we're gonna so put, it right. did it doesn't mean anything he didn't contribute at all to it at all <laughs> that's like so, lack of contribution at all it's just like it's like a being a customer that's what he yeah is. exactly yeah <laughs> oh con- what you can should congratulate me on buying your 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 item anyways oh my god so but the yeah the head of operation at warp seed he said that the half dose was actually only tested in a younger population with nobody over 55 so this was actually raises a very serious issue was these results correct or was it actually just a conf- a, a bias into a younger group and they didn't actually get to see it in the proper population and this is um the problem because they're might be only doing this in a, a subgroup analysis so they're only looking at a specific population uh, instead of looking at the whole population so this is why people were kind of very skeptical uh, and one an analyst wrote the product may never be licensed in the u.s because the company <laughs> might have embellished results so oh my god uh, that's a uh, being very being very cynical and uh pessimistic yeah they're being very pessimistic <laughs> so the reasons that they kind of i i seen that people were mentioning so one of them were saying maybe it was the age another reason was that there might not have been enough data to gauge the differences between the two regimens because the more effective half dose full dose were based on 2741 trial participants whereas the less the less efficacious efficacious mm-hmm um, only included 8,895 volunteers. So again, there's a lot less people in this arm of the trial. And this actually could still be as low as 66%, especially if the this arm actually goes on to include more older people, which is what you want to see. Um, so yeah, it's just something that I think they're going, when they're going to do this, uh, validate these, this arm of the, the, the trial, they're most probably going to have to look into this specifically to see is this actually true reflection of the whole population or is this uh, 90% only in one specific subgroup. So uh, that was that was like the suppose the the pessimistic or the the cynical reasons about why maybe they that's what's seen in this arm. Maybe the mm-hmm. more um, to look at it from purely scientific reason. Sp- sorry to look at this from a purely scientific standpoint um some of the scientists were kind of like maybe that the the lower dose of the vaccine did a better job of stimulating the t-cell mm-hmm. or that the immune response uh was 
or another explanation was the immune system's response against the chimpanzee virus that, that the okay. vaccine it triggered an immune response not only to the spike protein but to other components of the viral vector the, and it the, the aav yeah and that possibly mm. that the fo- first full dose blunted this reaction whereas the half dose didn't manage to blunt this as much and that's why it was a, such a more effective when it got tri- uh, stimulated the second time around okay i don't understand that well yeah this is just one of the things that they are hypothesizing this is before um just purely looking at a scientific not looking at if they looked at only certain group yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. or all this uh and the other possibility was that the lower dose may quickly lead to more establishment of the memory immune cells that are triggered by a second dose boost and that that wasn't really seen in the to the full dose uh, arm so i i understand that hypothesis that you give a smaller dose that creates memory cells then you give a boost and that that stimulates a bigger response i don't understand can you elaborate on that um av they, they don't re- i don't really know okay. much more about it it's just that this is just hypotheticals there's no we don't know for sure because they haven't released the data and i don't know exactly what they looked at did they look at uh the these type of immune cells in these both arms of the population did they look in the half dose full dose and full dose did they look at the amount of memory t cells that were established in both groups i don't know but that's so weird that they think that aav can trigger immune response i thought they were designed in a such a way to actually be a carrier uh like a carrier vector that is not in itself immunogenic yeah yeah Yeah. maybe maybe but i suppose maybe in this situation they wanted it it to be more uh have more immunogen immunogenicity so Mm. yeah i still don't understand why a lower dose and then a full dose would somehow managed to trigger the memory cells much more much better than uh compared to a full dose so they were saying maybe that if they actually waited longer between the two doses that it could achieve the same effect in the two full doses but again this is purely speculation so it it looks like the astrazeneca at this point has more questions than answers yeah yeah exactly so we just i don't think they already sorry we just have to wait again to see what the full results say when they do publish them uh, and yeah they definitely need to do more validation on this this arm i don't think they full dose. I, I don't think they're ready at all i wouldn't take the vaccine from them mm, yeah i don't i don't think no like you can't what happened like that's what i'm understanding here it's like they made a mistake and they're trying to turn it around mm, yeah like yeah. that's just in the simplest form you know that's the simplest as what has happened someone made a mistake loads of money was involved and they just now they're trying to turn the story around that was like oh but it's actually beneficial start from the scratch <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem though this, and i've said this it's like whoever comes out the first here has such a huge advantage because there's going to be such a scramble and that's always the bit of a worry is like when they're when there's so much like time is such a crucial thing here like i'm i, I will take the vaccine and when i read that and i'm going to read whatever one does get accepted i'll read the the 
the data and we can go through it. And I hopefully everyone who listens to the podcast will get the vaccine. But I'm just this is just a purely from my viewpoint. It's like yeah, it's just it's always a worry when the it it what I wish like we could just be like okay, we'll just wait and we can just see if another vaccine comes and another one and then we can just like have a look at them all together. Whereas now it's like once this the first one gets emergency approval which i think this pfizer one will get very soon yeah i'd say it could be even next week when by the time this episode drops um it's going to have such a huge advantage because everyone's going to want to buy it and yeah but that's the problem this these vaccines should be just distributed the like you shouldn't have to buy it what well, company, well, the EU, see, the EU is going to negotiate to buy them, and and the US is going to negotiate, and other countries will. So that's how they do it, and then they have to decide how to distribute them themselves. I was, I was looking um the EU vaccine contracts. Uh, so the AstraZeneca Oxford they have already agreed three hundred million doses, uh, and then the Pfizer BioNTech they have two hundred million. Uh, and then there's other ones that they have negotiated that haven't released their phase three at all yet, but that's CureVac, Janssen, and then Sanofi GSK. GSK. So they've negotiated like roughly 200 to 300 million doses from all these companies already. So um, this is how they're uh, managing this. So there is uh, like there there is there are three other vaccines that are not really being discussed. Well, they haven't. They these are still a little bit further behind than all the Moderna and Pfizer and Oxford, but they still have committed to buying these doses as well. I suppose I think that most probably uh, by the time that this uh, the vaccine, whichever one gets emergency approval, uh, that they'll most probably give these to priority like healthcare staff um elderly other immunocompromised people and then by the time that's distributed then these vaccines might come on stream that they'll be just able to give them to normal people who who want it but it was interesting i seen that moderna wasn't in this actually list as well so i think it definitely shows that moderna um is most probably going to be prioritizing america so i i yeah. But um, before I just finish up, I just there is reasons to be optimistic, I suppose. Bar in this Oxford vaccine, barring all this, uh, this whole thing with the half dose, full dose, because uh, no participant who received the vaccine was hospitalized or developed severe severe COVID, um, and there was also hints that the vaccine may prevent people from transmitting the virus even if they weren't showing symptoms. So this is actually a really interesting part that. The other two vaccines hadn't been able to show yet. So in the trials in the UK arm, so just was this in the UK, some participants routinely swabbed themselves for SARS-CoV-2 testing, even if they weren't showing symptoms. And this was something that Pfizer Moderna actually didn't do. They only were testing people with symptoms. And they found that there was differences in the infections rates that, the, sorry, Differences in the infection rates were still observed in people who received the placebo and the Oxford vaccine. So this would be huge because, uh, as I mentioned last week, asymptomatic transmission is the, such a big factor. So if they actually could stop this in uh, asymptomatic people, that's massive news. So, And then they as well, they were stressing again, they wanted to be accessible around the world, not just high income countries. So um they said they're going to actually set the price very low so 
and then they're going to be it's meant to be able to be stored at a fridge temperature i suppose this can all be meaningless if it ends up turning out that the Do efficacy you, is dropped yeah, very low so yeah i have a question about this um this is what you said there that um people who are infected by asymptomatic uh the administration of the vaccine stopped them from spreading the virus was it well was no it, no actually it wasn't that they were they it, it was people uh that were showing no symptoms uh i think okay sorry it was people who didn't get the vaccine they and were getting routinely get tested mm-hmm. they they were coming up positive whereas that wasn't happening with the people who were uh, getting the vaccine so it wasn't anything about transmission i think it's more that it was it, it was more uh, uh, i think you were more likely to see asymptomatic people in the the non um vaccinated group compared to the vaccinated group still don't know about the transmission you conf- you confuse me there because, i don't understand um in people asymptomatic so you don't ha- show symptoms mm-hmm. um these people who were positive for SARS-CoV-2 that was more likely to happen in the people who didn't get the vaccine compared to the people with the vaccine does that make okay. sense i think so, so so basically what this means is like the wor- that's the big worry is that if you're asymptomatic you're going and you're positive you're going to go around and you possibly could spread it whereas this is more lo- less likely to happen if you get the vaccine so then this could hopefully reduce tr- transmission um that's all we can really suppose speculate at this point so these people they figured this out because these people were getting swap pcr uh, get, mm. were getting pcr tests and was they were getting par- pcr without if they didn't have symptoms i don't know it'd be interesting now because if they don't i don't know if moderna or pfizer will be able to say this because they were only swabbing if you had symptoms so they'll be like oh it reduces the chances of you coming up positive but this is only for patients who came up with symptoms will they have been able to te- were they routinely testing everyone the whole time like was there a chance that they may have missed people who maybe didn't have symptoms but actually had the covid so, so that was that was part of the astrazeneca protocol to test it, people. it was just in the uk this wasn't in a they did this uh, so they also did this in the us and brazil and they didn't do this routinely swabbing or doing the testing so it was but only was- in the uk arm but that was the part of the protocol. Or was it just people being curious by themselves doing tests by um, themselves? I think, it, I, I think it most probably was part of the protocol they, that they had the resources in the UK to do it. So. Because if this is not the part of the protocol, it was just people's own curiosity. I don't think they, could, they should include that as a part of the results unless it was pre-designed part of mm. the protocol to do that as well. I'd say, uh, I, okay, I don't know for sure, but I would presume it most probably was part of the protocol because I don't think people would be like, oh, I got the vaccine. I'm going to just, I'm going to decide now. I'm going to, I don't think people are that uh, well organized. They're like, I'm going to decide now. I'm going to get swabbed every week or so after getting the vaccine. So I don't know. Well, I'm going to get tested before I leave and after I arrive. So like, you know, there are probably people who was, but yeah, it doesn't matter. If it was the part of the protocol, that's yeah, that's that's grand. We can wait. We can wait and see. And then I just want to quickly mention the Moderna vaccine. This was also released. Uh, this was released two weeks, three weeks ago now. Sorry, uh, sorry, two weeks ago. God, I'm getting mixed up. <laughs> I'm just trying to calculate when this episode has dropped. How long ago it was? This is two weeks ago. The Moderna vaccine results were released, 
And this was also super optimistic and shown to be super effective because it was 94.5% effective Mm. according to their interim findings based on a phase three trial. And yeah, they... The analysis was based on 95 COVID-19 cases uh, and there was 11 of which 90 uh, and there was 11 severe out of this 90 were observed in the placebo group and five were in the vaccine group. So there was a big difference there. There was and there was Mm. no there was no severe cases in the vaccine group whereas there was in the placebo. And yeah, this this info wasn't actually immediately available for Pfizer. So it's actually great that Moderna released this. Uh, and as well, they enrolled 30,000 U.S. participants, 70,000 were aged over 65, and 500 mm. under 65 with high-risk chronic diseases. And then they said more than one-third were from communities of colors. Mm. Sorry, one-third were from a community of color. Okay. Yeah, so they, yeah, they intend to submit their interim safety and effic- efficacy data to the FDA for emergency use authorization after following a final analysis of 151 cases. And then the US has a deal for 100 million doses with Moderna. And the difference again between this Moderna and Pfizer was that the Moderna can be yes stored in a household fridge for 30 days at room temperature for up to 12 hours and minus 20 for up to six months. So this was a, a stark contrast to the minus 70 for the Pfizer. So this is great to see like, wow, this is actually way more manageable and uh, efficient at being transported because you wouldn't have to keep it at such a cold temperature for so long. But compared to the other companies, this is actually going to be more expensive, um, which is approximately actually $25 per dose. This is a very, this is a lot more expensive. Sorry? You need two boosts. Yeah, so this is like $50 yeah. per dose. And how yeah. many people? If 100 million? That's ridiculous. So well, we'll if, see. If Moderna is going to um, go through and the USA is going to US gonna pick Moderna as their primary supplier from a very small biotech company, they're going to be huge. Yeah, yeah. All that profit. Money. They'll be rolling around in it. Uh, yeah, and then finally... Uh, I think I didn't mention this as well. So I've mentioned this briefly about how the companies are going to apply for emergency use authorization. But the thing to be aware of is that, so for example, the Pfizer BioNTech have applied for uh, emergency use authorization for the FDA. This is great. We want to get this available to everyone as quick as we can. The problem is, is that once you get it gets emergency approval it puts pressure on developers to offer immunization to trial participants who received a placebo so the placebo arm of the trial Mm. and the problem is if too many people cross over to the vaccine group the vaccines don't sorry the companies don't have enough data to establish long-term outcomes such as safety how long vaccine protection lasts and whether the jab prevents infection or just the disease so but that's the problem when you give emergency use authorization there people who get the placebo are entitled to get the vaccine because that's how you Mm. because it's not ethical to not give them it yeah so it's a bit of a dilemma now because what do you do do you refuse it how are we going to study these long-term effects um and especially this is what uh 
anti-vaxxers are going to point to they're like oh they don't have any long-term effects studied so how are we going to know because not enough people in the placebo group will have stopped taking it or will have take got the vaccine sorry so yeah there's people there's a risk of people dropping out just to get vaccinated um so yeah and the, it says companies can apply for this emergency use authorization when half the trial participants have been followed for two months after their dose Pfizer has hit this mark Moderna is expected to meet this soon um so yeah it's just it's just something that we need to be aware of uh going into this I don't think we've ever been in this situation before where we're so desperate for a vaccine but then we can how are we going to study this long term yeah, we don't even we don't really have the example to go by. No, um, but they yeah. said participants who initially received a, this is some alternatives they've offered. Participants who received who initially received a placebo but crossed over to get the vaccine could be monitored as a separate group, and a comparison of the vaccine's long term efficacy and safety could be made between these two groups possibly. Um, and then as well, before unblinding, companies could ask volunteers to remain in the study and receive the vaccine as soon as the trial is over, which maybe the bare minimum they could go is like two years or something. Uh, yeah. And hopefully then enough people have already got vaccinated that the risk is super low in this group anyways. So maybe there wouldn't be that much of a risk as it is. How long would they, like you think in two years before they can assess the long-term effects? That's what you would want to kind of study up till two years, wouldn't you? Yeah, so, makes sense. Yeah, it's just, it's, it, and many people are expecting that authorizations are going to be granted. So this is this the dilemma we're going to be faced with. So kind of yeah. lucky that it's not our responsibility to make that call. No, it's so funny because I think a couple of days ago I was having exactly the same conversation with my friend about the long term effects and how they're gonna go about it. Um, so it is in people's mind like mm. people do think about it because you know so they need to come up with a strategy to answer this because i i don't know what to say <laughs> i don't i can't if someone like andy vax says you how you what's the long-term effects you won't know i'd be like yeah like they're not they're not allowing they're giving people in the placebo group uh the chance to do it so we won't have enough numbers to see that if there is actually long-term differences between them so, it's yeah you can say that like oh it's a risk that we have to take but like it yeah it comes across some so condescending that like you don't you like you don't care about you know the long-term effect mm. it's just the risk we have to take it's what we do it's what we have to yeah. do yeah, yeah. well if, it, if they've uh, yeah uh, yeah yeah it's 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 a tricky one i tell um, you i tell you one thing i definitely won't be taking the um AstraZeneca vaccine looking out for long-term effects what other mistakes did they make I don't know <laughs> I don't want to find out <laughs> on yeah. me yeah hopefully I'm sure it'll be fine there was no it looked like they didn't have any serious side effects it's just maybe they made this mistake and they wanted to keep going because then it would set them back unnecessarily where they could have just kept going I don't know um yeah. yeah, but this is not like an explanation. They just wanted to do it because <laughs> otherwise it would be a it would be a setback. Like, yeah, that's how it works. You messed up. <laughs> like, what yeah. do you expect? Like, you just yeah, I don't know. Like, oh, Pfizer looks most promising, and also Pfizer has years of experience being in the business. Mm. So, yeah. um, I would take Pfizer. Probably would take Moderna. 
definitely not taking AstraZeneca. Okay. Okay. This is what I endorse. Sure. Let us know what you think. Um, you can let us know on get in contact with our, us on our Instagram, uh, or Twitter, skeptically inclined, and email us either at skepti- skeptically inclined at gmail dot com. Mm. Skeptically with a C. On that note, I think that's a good way to end uh, the episode. I think it is. Good stuff, Evan. You really yeah. are the vex- vaccine expert. <laughs> well, I like to look at it comprehensive because i just seen all this news was coming out. Uh, it, it was just crazy how it kind of was turning from such a positive thing to kind of negative. So mm. I wanted to get to the bottom of this. So I hope everyone, uh, I hope I did a good job explaining to everyone. Have you been contacted by WHO already about like no. being some sort of vaccine expert? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was... Um, because Mike Ryan is, he's like an Irish guy. He's like one of the, nearly the top role in the World Health Organization. So if you're listening, maybe Mike, you might come on our podcast and help us discuss the vaccine. He's he's actually from nearby where I'm originally from in Sligo. So Literally neighbors. Literally neighbors, yeah. <laughs> I wish. So Jesus, Evan, you know, such a... We, high, we should tag him on our, on our Instagram or Twitter. Like, Mike, have a listen. Yeah, 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 and we, you should meet him in your local pub in Sligo. He's <laughs> around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. So yeah, that was today's episode where we talked about dinosaurs. <laughs> um, what was it? Dinosaurs, nanomedicine, uh, moths being able to avoid oh, yeah. bats, <laughs> and uh, I keep thinking you're saying moths, like. It's because Evan, are you trying to no uh, no? I just, just, it just me because I was like moths, moths, and then I was like, oh moths, sorry, moths. Uh, and yeah, we talked about the the co- the recent vaccine development, particularly yes. the Oxford AstraZeneca. Uh, do you know what you're going to talk about next next episode? No idea yet. Uh, I think I... um, I think we're going to do another episode, and then we might have to take a break for Christmas. But Tom um, Tom's only going to get home, so I think he wants to spend it with his family uh when they annoy me we can record the podcast yeah uh, <laughs> yeah on that note i hope you enjoyed the episode and yeah we'll chat you on to the next episode stay yeah. skeptical bye bye